The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. The most important thing about your business could be how your products are packaged. Packaging is the signature that you leave everywhere, and it speaks volumes about who you are and what you do. This is Ditch the Box with David Marinak. In today's show, we'll talk about marketing, increased sales, and how it relates to product packaging. Have you explored alternatives like flexible packaging? You should. It can save your company a bundle. Now, here is David Marinak. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Ditch the Box, the marketing slash flexible retail packaging slash how to build your brand radio show. I'm David Marinak, your host. As you know, our show is about marketing and flexible retail packaging with a few other related topics in between, such as how to build your brand, dealing with major retailers, and even supply chain. Today's guest is Gary Swaim, National Sales Manager of Prairie Mills. But before we dig into Prairie Mills and learn what innovative things they're doing in the marketplace, we want to learn more about our guests as a person, their background, and what makes them tick. Gary's a veteran of the food and agricultural industry and during the past 30 years has built meaningful relationships in the food business across the United States and the globe. Gary is responsible for all of sales at Prairie Mills, which we'll hear about a little bit later. Early in his career, he was a radio celebrity in Michigan and West Virginia. His Indiana farm roots brought him back to Indiana in the early 1980s, where he worked for the lieutenant governor of the state of Indiana, and with his agricultural background, eventually became the statewide director of agriculture. His family's farm is in west West central Indiana and has historically been one of the most well-respected American Angus cattle breeders in the country. Gary and his wife have two children, and that keep them busy. They live outside of Mooresville in one of Indiana's most scenic and historical log homes. Gary is very active in civic, philanthropic, and church activities of his community and the state. Gary, I've been waiting a long time to say this, my friend. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Dave. It's a pleasure to be here. This is great. I'm looking forward to this. So let's go back to the early days. And as I said in the intro, you were you know, involved with radio in Michigan and West Virginia. Tell our, in West Virginia, tell our listeners a little bit about those days, the stations, what type of radio, the format, etc. Well, up until the very end, it was all small market radio where you uh, pretty much did all kinds of jobs, which was pretty appealing to me. I started off in South Haven, Michigan at WJR Radio. Uh, I'm not even sure that station's even there. South <laughs> Haven at that time was uh, a struggling former tourist town that was trying to redefine itself, and uh, it, it, it really was struggling. Of course, since I left, and I don't know if that uh, was what spurred its sudden development, it's become one of the hot spots in southwest Michigan and along the Lake Michigan shoreline for boaters and Sure. vacationers and that type of thing. So um, that was a dawn to dust station. And uh, um, I, I did sales. I did commercial spots. I eventually got on the air a little bit. Uh, nice. And then I moved on to another station not too far away uh, in Holland, Michigan, where I was um, it was a religious station. And 
AM, FM. I uh, spent half the day engineering uh, religious programming and the other half doing music. And um, from that point, I went on to northern Michigan, to Big Rapids, to um, WBRN Radio. Sure. And uh, I'm so old that a lot of these stations have changed their call letters. They've been acquired, you know, so it, you have to look into the annuals of broadcast it to even find out where they were. Stop. But there I was sports and news director and had a, had a great time at that job. If that, you were um, looking back, we, did you... Did you enjoy that more so than than the other part? It sounded like you you even picked up your your voice. You were like, "Well, when I was doing the voice and doing or the doing some sports and some other uh, programming, was that something that really struck you?" Well, I envisioned myself as uh, as as being a sportscaster at some point later down the line, right. and that's where I first got my my shot at doing play by play and color for Ferris State College uh, football and. Yeah. local high school teams and things like that. And that's kind of where I wanted to run my career. Sure. Um, but the problem was I wasn't finding ways to make much of a living doing that. And I, I even though the Big Rapids gig was a, a lot of fun and we got to do a lot of different things, and I was working with a bunch of really creative people that um, – really allowed you to think outside the box. Um, it, there just really wasn't enough opportunity there for me. And so I took a job as a salesperson at, uh, at a bigger market station in Roanoke, Virginia, the WSLC, which is really was one of the top country stations at that time in the country. And that's where I kind of began to um, see that maybe radio really wasn't my, my thing. Uh, it, it, the, the art form began to give way to the business part of, uh, of broadcasting, and uh, I, I really kind of lost my lust for the business. I had one other job before I left altogether, and that was uh, a news job with another station in, uh, in Roanoke for a while, and then I got out of the business altogether and kind of regrouped. It you know it's, it it's not for everybody. It yeah, it's 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 you know the one thing that you had mentioned and I've heard from a lot of people, whether they're guests on the show um, that have had a little bit of a background in radio or just others that are outside of the of the industry. But those that have been involved with it, you know, just you either get that burnout um, or you realize it's it's not. I don't know. I think we've all been kind of danced with those illusions that it's it's that career for us when we're in college. And the next thing you know, it just doesn't pay very well. And it's like, dang, I mean, I'm not going to make any, I'm not going to make any money here. Um, and yeah, I've heard that, you know, that's, it's pretty interesting how that's kind of unfolded for a lot of us. It, it's hard to make uh, a really good living unless you're a syndicated uh, program or you're in right. a major market. And then you have to do the uh, agent thing, which I didn't really want to do. And, right. uh, and, and it's all very, what have you done for me lately? You know, right. what is the Arbitron? What, what are your ratings? And um, it, it, it really, I just decided that that wasn't exactly the route I wanted to go. So that kind of took you back to your roots, if you will, because you kind of grew up on the family farm. And then, you know, you spent some time with the Indiana Department of Agriculture. You know, that was back in the 80s. Tell us a little bit more about that and then how you got involved with the, with the whole Department of Agriculture. Well, I moved from Virginia back to Indiana kind of restart my life 
and um, was looking for, actually, I was looking for a job that was a kind of nonprofit. And, um, you know, government is obviously, in that sense, nonprofit. Um, I was lucky enough to get appointed to a position where I was working with um, agriculture, energy management, and conservation. Found myself working with the, um, at, the at that time, we called it gasohol. Uh, ethanol, ethanol fuels and renewable resources. And I got pretty involved in that. And um, next thing I know, I moved up to an assistant director position. Uh, Then came an election, and my boss um, was asked to leave. I was put in a position of interim director for three months or so. And... um, then was approached to take it on as as, uh, as director of agriculture, and um, I did so, and kind of reluctantly. I wasn't really sure that um, you know I, I understood what the job was about, but it, it I learned pretty quickly, and I, I did that for for seven years, and hmm. uh, that was a great opportunity for me. I, I traveled uh, all over the Far East uh, promoting really? Indiana agriculture products and making contacts with businesses and. And that potential is, buyers, and that was making context for the Indiana Department of Agriculture. So you were kind of out there saying, "Hey, these are the products that we're we're growing, and these are the things that we've got available." Is that do I have that right? That is correct. You know the live the, the livestock seed stock producers. You know the breeding stock, sure. you know, the um, food uh, and equipment manufacturers in the state who are interested in breaking into overseas markets. Um, that that was uh, I spent a fair amount of time traveling overseas, and that was pretty interesting. And you know, we got increasingly more involved in agriculture policy development on the state and national level. And um, it was uh, I met an awful lot of people that uh, I ordinarily wouldn't have met, and had a sure. lot of opportunities there to travel and and to experience things that the normal people. And, uh, you know, the normal kind of job you would have don't have that opportunity. So I really count myself as being fortunate, sure. very fortunate to have had that opportunity. Well, it's interesting because you one of the things that kind of tied, um, connected there right after the Department of Agriculture is the, the Taurus Foods. And that was you were also doing some stuff with the Far East in Europe, right? Did I have that right? That is correct. Um I left the state and, and went to work as a national and international um, a sales specialist for Taurus Foods, which was a, uh, a small meat processing company in Indianapolis, and, and I'm also a frozen food distributor. Right. And uh, during that time, you know, we uh, managed to grow, well, we, we introduced them into the international market. Right. Um, all, all of our business was in the Far East at that point. Um, unfortunately, that also was about the time that the hormone issue yeah. um, began to flare up in, in uh, the EC, and they banned U.S. beef for export into the EC because of concerns over health effects that the feeding hormones to animals had. Right. We had a big project that was underway at that time called U.S. Beef Holland, and um, that basically, you know, the, the floor fell off from under it. Uh, so we directed all of our energies toward the Far East, to Korea, Japan, um, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Singapore. And uh, 
and also uh, working on meat products with um, larger regional and national chains. So that was uh, that. That was um, that was a nice little stint of about five or six years there too. Well, it's it's what's interesting is I just kind of flash back to I've spent a considerable amount of time over the last five seven years maybe going back and forth to the Far East and um, I can only imagine you doing that as a young guy in the eighties and early nineties because that whole culture that whole world is evolving right in front of our eyes and I mean goodness gracious I thought it was bad when I went over there I'm sure you saw some things that were like. This, does this place even have, you know, I mean, there was, you know, dirt floors and, 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 you know, holes in the ground for the bathroom. And I mean, it was, it was, I'm sure you saw a whole bunch of stuff too. Yeah, it was, it was eye-opening. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, I've always joked that we, we thought that every USDA meat inspector should spend a certain amount of time touring meat plants in Asia to really see how the rest of the world lives. That's right. Um, <laughs> you know, there were, there in China, when I was in China, the hygiene was just basically, um, right. gosh, almost not existent. You know, I mean, they they had frozen pork carcasses stacked on top of each other <laughs> on a concrete floor, a wet concrete floor, mind you, oh. uh, in a department store in Shanghai. <laughs> oh, and and they had cabbage. Excess cabbage stacked around tree bases oh. all up and down the streets of Shanghai because yeah. they didn't have enough cold storage. Oh, man. Uh, in Hong Kong, you know, you were in basically an open air packing house where they were hauling fresh carcasses out to what they call the wet markets in the backs of open uh, mini pickup trucks. And, yes. uh, and you go to the wet market and they'd be breaking these carcasses down on concrete slabs, concrete slop, uh, uh, not slop, but chopping blocks, uh, with nothing but a piece of cardboard in between the meat and, and the, uh, concrete block, uh, and, and flies buzzing around. And of course. That's the way yeah. those populations like their meat. It's and it's hard to describe unless you've actually been there. It's just it's it'll take your breath away in, in a good way, not in a good way. Um, it'll take your breath away when you when you see it because it's like holy mackerel. Uh, it's just unlike anything we've ever seen here in, in our in our you know sheltered life here in the U.S. Would you agree? Oh, I would absolutely agree. I mean, it's horrifying for some people. Um, right. You know, for me, it was just enlightening, and I was pretty amazed. Um, but it's been several years since I traveled that part of the world, especially in mainland China. And, uh, it was before my first trip there was before, uh, enterprise was allowed. Wow. Wow. Everything was state run, state owned. Yeah. Yep. There were, there weren't even, um, soda pop stands along roads. Jeez. And the, the, the last time I was there, you began to see, um, signs of a little bit of, uh, miniature capitalism. Yeah. Now, from that point on, it's just exploded. Well, and it's interesting now because they've got this this kind of like uh, up and coming middle class, and that's just kind of throwing the Chinese government for a complete loop because all of a sudden you've got this this now growing class saying, "Hey, we want to be treated a little bit better. Uh, we don't want to necessarily live in in, in dirt floor, you know, because a lot of these these people actually live at the factories and things like that." And uh, mm-hmm. it's just a, it's fascinating now that they're, they're starting to kind of say, hey, we've got some weight here we can throw around. And 
And frankly, there are times the Chinese government just doesn't know what to do with it. So it's interesting. My my first time in Shanghai, um, there there was one automobile per 100 people, and it was absolute gridlock in Shanghai. Now it's 15. I can't even imagine how the city moves. Yeah, and that's the one thing I've I've often talked with my partner who actually lives there, and and it's it's kind of interesting where he's the world. Uh, all of us are here in the U.S. are kind of paranoid about the Chinese and you know the powerhouse that they are, and they are. I mean, don't get me wrong, but one of the things that Daryl has always said to me is, and he was a lifer at Kmart back in the day, so you can definitely appreciate this. He had said, you know, they just they've got a billion three hundred million people. Yes, they could squash everybody. The problem is. They don't have the infrastructure to move them. And I see that every That's time right. I'm there. Every bus, every cab, every plane, every airport, every street is packed with people, and you can't move. So it's, it's like watching a bunch of weebles or those old days of the electric football game when you kind of like put that buzzer on there and watch the, you know, the, the, the vibrating table of the football guy just kind of like clustered around. I mean, it's really bizarre to see, but that's how they move. That's, and there's no sort of, and I know you saw this when you were there too, there's no sense of like personal space because they're so used to being packed together. It's always like this, it's not like here in the U.S. where it's kind of like, well, you go, then I'll go, and I'll open the door for you, and you, whatever it is. It's not etiquette per se, I'm saying, but they're so packed that it's kind of like as yeah. soon as you get up, they just jam the doors, and everything's jammed. And it's like, wait a minute, guys, you're not going to go anywhere, but they don't understand that. It's, it's fascinating to watch. When I was in Shanghai the first time, I, I, one of the things that I, I, I brought back with me as a vivid memory was watching people at bus stations, or bus yes. stops, get on yep. the bus. And every bus stop had an attendant that had a cane. <laughs> and he, would, he was there to push people into the bus <laughs> so they could get the doors uh, shut. And, and if, if, if your backside was sticking out, you yep. get caned. I'll be damned. And if in, in that situation, there'd be some people who would just call right over the top of people to get out of the way. Oh. I mean, it was just unbelievable. I you tried know, to... The seating def- capacity was, was <laughs> absolutely a foreign uh, concept to them. Oh, yeah. And, and, and again, when you've got that many people and you've got that bus that has no windows that roll down, and if that air conditioner, which often doesn't circulate any, any air, it's just nasty. And, you know, you're yeah. talking about having, you know, what a bus that holds 45 people holding 75 people and no air circulating. It's just unbelievable. And, I'll, you know, it's funny. I'll, I'll, I'll take you on, a, on another trip back in, in time. The first time I was in China, um, we're, we're on the, you know, we're on a car driving us to a factory or something like that. And, and again, they've built these massive um, road systems, which probably weren't even there when you were there. Now they've got probably five not, and yeah. six lane highways e- each way. So you got about a total of 10 to 12 lanes coming and going. And um, we're in one of the high speed lanes. Now, the Chinese, by the way, will go as fast as they can to get to the bumper in front of them and then beep the horn. And it's not like a disrespect like over here where you beep the horn and someone kind of flips you off or whatever it is. That's just kind of like I'm coming through. And um, and I remember we're in one of the high-speed lanes, if not the left high-speed lanes, and we are going 80 easy. Next thing you know, all traffic stops in the just not our lane – but just in the middle lane, one of the middle lanes. And, and I'm thinking, 
the traffic kind of like, I mean, it just slams onto a stop. And here, a bus stops in the middle of the road and lets off somebody with a donkey or a goat. So there was livestock on this bus that now gets off the bus. And still, remember, the other lanes are still moving. So they're now yeah. off this bus and they're navigating their way. It was like uh, Pokemon or whatever it is, Pong or whatever it is, uh, navigating across their Frogger across the highway. It was the craziest thing I've ever seen with my in my life. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. It's insane. Oh, it's that way all the way up and down the Pacific Rim in most of those countries. Now, Singapore is more orderly and more lawful yeah. now, I think, than maybe yeah. almost any other country in the world. I've heard that. But uh, further up the rim, uh, it's, it's, uh, people here have no concept of a mass of humanity that you see there. Yep, yep. Uh, and, you know, take take uh, New Year's Eve in Times Square and, and factor that at times 30. Right. Maybe every day. Somewhat every of day. Of, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just incredible yep. um, humanity in, in, in those countries, especially in mainland China. But uh, amongst all of that and all their controlled economy, even back then, they really were creators of some of the most interesting packaging concepts I have ever seen in my life. Yep. And uh, so, I mean, it really it says a lot about what's really inside that. Well, you know, and it's it's a cool segue too. Before we take a quick break, but it was was really funny. The first time I went over there, the one thing my partner Daryl had said to me was, "The Chinese don't." And I know you'll you'll agree with this. The Chinese are are very gracious people. They don't they want to please. They want to make sure that they're gracious, and they want to make sure that they so they will not say no. So, for example, if I take off my eyeglasses and say, "Can you make these?" They'll immediately say, absolutely. Now, they've never made it, but if you ask them, have you ever made eyeglasses before? Oh, no. But, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What what do you do? Well, I make bags. Okay, wait, wait, okay. All right, so forget the eyeglasses. Show me the bags. So, and again, it's, it's in a lot of times, you know, people make the mistake when they connect with somebody in China and don't vet them properly. And there's a lot of times somebody will quote them this ridiculous price of a bag or packaging in general, a box or whatever, and they'll go, well, I got a price for five cents. Man, aren't I, aren't I the smart guy? And until you get this thing, whatever that is that you get, and it's completely, you know, cattywampus and, you know, it doesn't, you know, have the barrier properties or stand or whatever it is. And that's where a lot of people get kind of lost there. You have to really have the ability and the people and the staff there to be able to make sure that, A, you get what you want and B, you get it done properly. Um, because right. it's the wild, wild west over there, man. And so many people think they're smarter than everybody else and can do it themselves through Alibaba or some other thing. And it's, it's crazy. You'll end up getting burned big time. They're very enterprising people. They're very yep. aggressive people. Uh, they're, they're very much about getting the deal. Yep. Uh, and, and, and they don't like to say no. Now, there is a big difference between Chinese culture and the Japanese culture and the Korean culture. Korean That's culture is more like from a business standpoint, more like the Chinese. Japanese are very cautious and, and, and go to great lengths to qualify what they do do and what they don't do. But the Chinese, they're out there to make deals. Yeah. And if you're, and if you, and don't bother them with a bunch of BS nonsense, um, just show me, show me the money, show me the orders, you'll get what you want. Um, yeah. talking, talking a great game about what's possible and what's great. Like we all love to do here in the States about our great plans and we're going to make a boatload of money and we're going to do all this stuff. 
um, they'll look at you and, and, and nod and say, that's great, but where's the orders? And, and it's, right. <laughs> if you're not used to that, and they'll come right out, and you know this as well as I do, they'll come right out and say, well, you haven't given me any orders, so you're full of nonsense. So yeah. <laughs> it's kind of funny. All right, man, we've got to take a quick break. We're a little bit over this segment, but uh, when we come back, we're really going to dig into Prairie Mills, the history, how it's evolved, your role there, et cetera. So um, thanks, folks, for hanging with us as we went back and uh, chatted a little bit about the Far East. So, Gary, this has been a lot of fun. Hey, folks, stay tuned. We are going to be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth reality, and 21st century archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Ditch the Box with David Marinak. If you would like more information about our program, send David an email to david at standuppouches.net. That's david at standuppouches.net. Now back to Ditch the Box. Welcome back to Ditch the Box. We're talking with our friend Gary Swaim from Prairie Mills. Now let me give you a little background on Prairie Mills. In 1920, a century celebration milestone in downtown Indianapolis occurred with the opening of a brand new grain and flour mill. The company was known as Acme Evans. Historical photos of that new mill show that the company roots were as old as the state of Indiana. Based in Indianapolis, the company grew to become one of America's leading flour millers. About 80 years after Acme Evans was founded, a mill in Rochester, Indiana, took on a new life to bring wheat flour and cornmeal to northern Indiana as the 1900s began. It also became a very successful flour milling business. Both companies grew and reinvented themselves at various periods to remain relevant and profitable. Ownership of the Rochester Mill went to the Wilson family, and they moved the business exclusively toward corn milling and named the business Wilson's Corn Products. 
Meanwhile, the Acme Evans folks continue to grow their wheat and corn milling business, and they use the brand Easy Bake from the beginning. Easy Bake became an industry icon and a grocery store brand staple throughout all of Indiana and much of the Midwest by the 1960s. In the very early 1980s, Acme Evans and its affiliated businesses were severely impacted by a grain embargo and were forced into liquidation. A former Acme Evans executive bought the Easy Bake brands and its distribution throughout the country. Now, the early 1990s, Wilson's Corn Products began making all of the Easy Bake brands, or Easy Bake products, I should say. Wilson Corn Products was far more than Easy Bake. The Wilson family had built its business with customers from Chicago to New York, from Detroit to Cincinnati. The corn products operation became a major supplier to various industrial producers of specially niche chemicals and concentrates. Furthermore, corn products began a journey into special, specialty corn hybrids unique to certain market needs and requirements. Commercial bakeries around the country began to learn about the various niches that Wilson's Corn Products had established and the business grew significantly as, the rep, as its reputation for quality and service opened doors. Food service buyers also began to take notice of the quality of the corn-based products Wilson's had. In 2006, John Corey acquired both Easy Bake and Wilson's Corn Products. Mr. Corey renamed the company Prairie Mills and kept all brands. The various brands include Easy Bake, Southern Plantation, Dorsals, and Wilson's. During the past seven years, Mr. Corey has presided over significant growth in all the various business units of Prairie Mills. The new affiliates the company has underway hope to produce continued growth and opportunity. Woo! So let's start there, Gary. I remember reading that your family farm and John's were close together. So have you known John for a while? Forever. He's, he's, a, he's a little younger than I am, but actually... Our grandparents were good friends, so were our parents, uh, and, uh, and and John and I have known each other really since um, we were old enough to know anything just about. Uh, our paths kind of reconnected back when I was with uh, the state of Indiana, and we worked on a few uh, various projects, And uh, but our career paths were kind of uh, running different directions, and finally in 2006, uh, when he bought this company, he called me. I was working for McFarlane Foods at that time as a yep. national sales director. And uh, uh, he, he asked me to come aboard. And um, it seemed like a good opportunity. And uh, we did, and now it's 10 years. So um, it's, it's the best uh, working situation I've ever had. He's the best boss I've ever had. And we, uh, we've had a lot of fun growing this company and improving this company. Now, I read that your facility in Rochester is one of the largest niche milling companies in the east of the Mississippi. What is niche milling? Well, you've got the majors, like ADM and Bungie and and um, people like that, that um, are the multinational uh, milling operations, and, and they do... Uh, whale car types of quantities, and they do the, tra- the traditional uh, specifications, granulation specifications. And we're basically a job house. You know, if you need something specific or something unique for your particular product or operation or process, we'll take that on. We'll see if we can do it. We, we're, right. we're, we're a little Chinese in that regard. We don't say no. We'll at least see if we can do it. Right. Um, and, and we work with non-GMO products. We are organic certified, uh, although we do very, very little of that, uh, of, of organic. We do quite a bit of non-GMO and we'll probably be doing more, more in the future right. as this, as this, uh, 
becomes um, something that the, the general public seems to be demanding. You know, and it's, and it's interesting as you were talking about that, because I, I can totally picture that. There, there's so many companies that we were chatting earlier about China and the whole bit, but there's a lot of companies that get in, enamored with these big orders, the, the big boys, and competing with the big boys. And and where a lot of people will, will tend to overlook these niches, these, these kind of like, um, you know, everybody loves the big orders. You do and I do too, don't get me wrong. But if that gets us in the door by going after something niche, something unique, that could be our calling card. That could be what, what separates us and gets us on the store shelf in general. Would you agree? Absolutely. And, and, and our, our role for a lot of the bigger companies, for the bigger for the processors, is to right. use us as a, as a beta lab. You know, you're developing a product. Yep. You need to have something special. Um, let us help you develop that because we have that capability. You don't have a lot of bureaucracy to go yep. through. You don't have to have a lot of big customers that you have to take a place behind their interest right. uh, before you have your chance to, you know, see your product. Uh, we're just very easy to work with, very flexible, and uh, we know that in some cases what we help develop will probably outgrow us. That's okay. That's yeah, all right. right. We'll, we'll, we'll enjoy the trip up and, and, uh, and, and go look for another one. Well, you know, it's interesting, and, and, I, and I find it fascinating, too. A lot of times, that I, I say the same thing with our team here, Gary, when we're doing this. And, um, and what I find with the bigger companies, um, once you're kind of in there, um, you can grow with them. And often, um, you know, I hate to say this, but the bigger boys are lazy. These bigger companies don't want to change. If they're happy with your product and happy with the service and happy with how it's coming in, they will bend over backwards to keep that with you because it's work for them to make changes. It's work for them to spec a new company or their new flour or grain or whatever or their new packaging. And that's why it's it's been a very cool niche for us to go after the smaller pieces. I, I know I'm segueing into the packaging world, but you know, similar to you guys, I bet that gives you, you know, a feather in your cap to really kind of probably keep that business longer than we ever would had we not been there in the first place. For a small company, especially for retail, and that's where you and I have worked together yep. in, in, a, in our packaging, uh, we are not going to be the low-cost provider. Right. We are not going to be the kind of company that um, can throw a lot of advertising dollars behind your product. Right. We have to um, find customers that value what we do, yep. who want to work with us, and our job is to make sure that we're very, very consistent in terms of uh, our product, uh, that we are at least competitively priced or can yep. justify a premium, and that our packaging is absolutely top shelf. You know, it, we weren't always that way. We weren't yeah. always that way, and we were losing market share. I'll be darned. And it was primarily because our packaging was inferior, and that is why we went to the stand-up resealable pouch. And and that it, I mean, it's it's tough. The category that we're in is kind of a dying category, and we're always trying to recreate and 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 redesign things so we stay fresh and relevant. Right. Um, but because home bakers are becoming a thing in the past, our particular product really struggles to stay, you know, in the consumer's eye. You know, packaging one of the th- is really so so important. 
You know, I appreciate you saying that because one of the questions or one of the points I was going to make uh, a little bit later, but I might as well just run with it. You know, we've often kind of um, talked here and actually um, done a lot of marketing, um, and I even have it on our tagline as we sign off of this show, is that packaging is the voice of your brand. And it's the first thing consumers see when you walk down the store aisle. And so many companies think of it at the last minute, Gary. They throw it together and they go, oh, crap, I need to package this now? um, How about get a plastic bag? Okay, and then we'll put it in a box. And then they're, you know, so, and so often, and that's one of the things that I've been been really glad um, since we started working together is you guys understand that packaging is important. Um, and you understand that, and it's part of your philosophy, yours, John's, the whole group, that you've got to protect your product first. We get that. You've got to make sure your product is in that flavor and consistency and, and texture that you know, the, the bakers want. But you also have to make sure that it's, you know, it, it's, it's consumer-friendly, that it stand erect, stands erect, that it can, um, like I said, protect the product. But it makes your product stand right. out. And, and so right. many no, companies you think of face. it. You want a good yep. face on the shelf. You want that uh, packaging to be better than what the normal packaging is of your competitor. Yep. Uh, and and the first impression is always the lasting impression. Yep. You know you've got to you've got to have packaging. You've got to have graphics that will catch the consumer's eye yep. to even have a chance. Right. To jump in their shopping basket. And let's stay with that for a second. As a guy, as a guy who's been in the industry uh, or around it for a large part of your career, you've seen the changes in these in the retailers. We're going to segue a little bit of the retailers and that kind of tie into the packaging. Um, you know, who are the dominant? Um, you know, back in the old days, we had the A and P's. We had um, goodness gracious, I, I I don't remember even some of the some of the names of these these old retailers that are now defunct, but. You know who holds the the upper hand now? Is it Walmart? Is it is it Target? Is it you know who's the big players in the in the industry from a retailer standpoint? Well, Kroger is a major major player in right. a good part of the country, and they have several different brands. And they have they have uh, a brand out on the West Coast or two. You know, uh, King Food out in Denver. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a lot of Kroger brands out there that don't necessarily sport. Kroger as as their label. Right. They are a big big customer. Safeway is a big customer. as uh, is, is a big player on the East Coast. Excuse me, the West Coast. Uh, Meyer is significant in this part of the in the world. H E B down in the yeah. Southwest is a dominant player. Publix in the Southeast, very very fine company. They they really have have been a dominant player. Uh, and then the Northeast is a little bit more chopped up, but there are some really strong players in there that would have two, three hundred stores. Um, it's all very, very competitive. All but very guy, competitive. But a guy like you that's been in the industry for a long time, and I and I, and I mean this in, in sincerity, you have um, you like you're rattling off some of these, you know, the Krogers and the Safeways and the King Foods. What to you, um, Gary Swain? What to you? Um, makes a, a a good retailer? Is it, um, you know, are they just fair about pricing? Do they, you know, what is it in your opinion? Uh, and there's no right or wrong answer. I'm just kind of curious. 
because I've had I've had people on here as guests, and they love the fact that the um, a company pays their bills quickly, which is always important. Um, we've got you know we've got some of these um, that love a particular type of retailer because they will help them nurture from a regional buy into a national buy. What's your take on what makes a good, um, friendly um, a, a retailer for a, for a supplier like you guys? Well, to begin with, you know, one of the things that we look for is a retailer that doesn't uh, require an arm and a leg as a slotting allowance. Right. You know, for those of you who don't understand that, you know, retailers will charge manufacturers to bring their products in and designate space in their warehouse for distribution. So either we have to find companies that um, are pretty reasonable or don't have that kind of a policy, or we have to find a way to do direct store delivery because our product is is a very high-quality product. It is processed a little differently from the big people, uh, and, and it's more expensive. So in order for us to stay competitive, we have to take cost out in other parts of the whole game. Right. Uh, secondly, I think we're looking for, we are looking for retailers, you know, who are trying to cater to people that still like to make their own food. Yep. You know, that, that uh, value the home baker, that promote yep. home baking, um, that uh, want features like non-GMO to yep. provide for their customers. Uh, and, and, who are themselves pretty good uh, merchandisers in the store, you know, that have cooking schools and cooking classes and have good social media programs that um, are cheap for us to participate in. Uh, you know, those are the kinds of qualities that we're looking for in prospective buyers. Uh, and, and hopefully we can come together on price and service that, uh, you know, we can work together successfully. You know, it's I, I, really. It, yeah, go ahead. Go sorry. Ahead. No, no, no. I was just going to say. You know, what's interesting is because um, you're kind of you, you tipped on a touch on a couple of things that I, I want to stay with. You know, to make it inexpensive or affordable to kind of um, compete. Well, comp- well, compete is probably the word. Um, you know, so many times in your industry and in our industry. We've got these massive trade shows. We've got to pay – you guys pay slotting fees. You've got to somehow find – you're trying to partner with people that, that make it affordable. I like how you said affordable to work with them um, because it's it, – you know, these, these, these guys just – I don't know. They think that some of these comp- – or a lot of these companies have unlimited budgets and I'm not going to spend a boatload of cash. And I know Prairie Mills is going to spend a boatload of cash just to have the conversation. Um, you, you want somebody that values what you've got. And, and I just thought that was interesting. And I just figured I'd stay with that for a second. But, but take it away. I just think that's a, that's a great point. Well, I think right now, um, not only in, in, in food, but in everything, the, the, the term millennial strikes yeah. Fear in marketing and merchandising people's hearts, because millennials are 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 throwing the book out the window. Yep. You know, it's a it's a whole new game. Sure is. And for people like myself who've been in the business for decades, um, we're back to square one trying to understand exactly what they're looking for. And as a as a packaging company like yourself, it's probably right. going to be more challenging for you to become innovative, to be able to have systems and, and, and designs and textures 
that appeal to this emerging market that we really don't yet quite understand exactly what they're looking for. Oh, it's totally a moving target. You were so spot on. Um, You know, it's interesting. I've got a webinar this afternoon uh, with a company that specializes in personalization um, on the packaging. And that's one of the things that millennials love. And it doesn't necessarily mean the Coke bottle or can with your name Gary on there or whatever, although that's part of it. It's it's literally kind of... um, continuing the conversation after if from the time that the the potential buyer walks on the store aisle and takes out their their smartphone and connects with your product in a QR code or some other type of code that leads to coupons or leads to more information because remember millennials want to have a say in the ingredients that are used in their products. They want to have a say in the packaging that's used. Is it good for the environment? Is it recyclable? Is it biodegradable? They want to have a say in um, the freshness and, and all these other things. So you're right. It's a moving target, but it's a tremendous opportunity for those that are willing to kind of figure, I don't want to say figure it out, but it's a moving target, but to try to figure it out because it's a huge, huge market. I think truly this movement is kind of coming back to benefit smaller companies yep. like ourselves that yep. have a very specific story behind their product, a unique process. Uh, it, it's, it makes it, I, well, I think it will get easy down the road to get the large, large companies, you know, basically selling products. Right. Uh, because millennials are not necessarily interested in that. Right, and the other component that is is somewhat tragic, but even in that, you you have to pick out how it benefits you. As testing becomes more sophisticated, and and food products are now much more subject to recalls because yep. impurities are more easily detected. Yep, um, it repels. I think the consumer from some of these large, large companies who they don't feel are quite as personal about their products as what a smaller company would be. So that regard, I think that will be a, a benefit to smaller companies, which are perceived to have greater control over their operations simply yep. because of size. Uh, and, so, I mean, it's it, it's going to be really interesting to watch in the next 10, 15 years to see how this all plays out. But you know, if, if if I'm half as smart as I want to be about <laughs> this, I think it's kind of moving back towards small company uh, uh, success and a little further away from major company dominance. You know, and it's, and it's so interesting because simultaneously, I, and I agree with you 100%, but what here's the oddball thing that's out there, and you know this as well, is so what tends to happen is when things start to come back into the smaller players, um, the big conglomerates with the big money come in and buy them out. Now, they'll keep the name Sahali Snacks or um, XYZ Company and just to continue, but that's how the big guys are getting back into this game without having to totally reinvent um, their business and um, and I get it and that's it's going to be interesting because some companies and millennials are very smart they're they're not foolish if they feel like they're being stroked that Smuckers has bought out Sahali Foods 
and they don't want to deal with smuckers and they find this out, they'll just shun the whole entire brand and they'll get on their smartphone and Twitter and tell everybody about it. And um, yes. it's going to be real interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, the game is really going to be played so much differently than what it has in our lifetime. Uh, and, and it's probably going to be for people younger than us, David, yep, yep. to know exactly how to perfect reaching the consumer. Because who gets, who gets closest to the consumer yep. is the one that wins the game. Yep, you got it. And that's why I'm fascinated with this personalization stuff, with how to interact with these people. If millennials, the first thing they do is pick up their phone. And your kids, my kids, I mean, it's they don't even read manuals anymore. They, they get a phone and they just start to figure it out. And it's in their DNA. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I don't even, you know, program a, a a new TV or a computer. I just call my son and say, figure this out and tell me which buttons to push because I, I don't have the time to read a, you know, two inch thick manual. They just, it's in their DNA. It's crazy. Um, but so you maybe have yeah. to inspect them on how to write a check. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I know. So you're exactly right. So certain things they are absolutely brain dead. There's like this, this fog in their brain that's kind of like, what? Write a check? Make a phone call? Like actually, like a number, not a text message. I mean, right. pick up the phone and call your mother. Well, I don't know her number. She's on my speed dial. I'm like, oh man, that's right. It's like, that's right. what is going on? Goodness gracious. Well, let's kind of touch base a little bit here as we head towards the final stretch, but I want to just make sure that we touch base on some of the different brands that, that you guys have. I, of course, I talked about Easy Bake and, and Southern Plantation. Tell us more, because I think this El Gallo uh, Dorado, that's another one that's really up and coming. Tell us more about the brands of Prairie Mills. Well, Easy Bake is one of the oldest, we call it the legacy brand yeah. for Indiana. You know, yeah. uh, Easy Bake is traced back um, it's at least as far as uh, the early 1800s. Uh, and in that category, other companies who would be kind of in that, in that genre would be Red Gold, which everybody pretty okay. much knows. Yep. Clabber Girl yep. was another legacy brand from years and years back. Uh, Hearst Beans, which is an Indianapolis. Oh, yeah. That is a oh, yeah. terrifically yep. old, old yep. company. And Easy Bakes right in there. I'll be done. You know, so it was uh, uh, because of the, the the problems they had with the original owner, and and they're uh, basically going out of business in the in the nineteen seventies. Uh, it, it it lost a lot of ground, but right. um, it still has a lot of um, old customers who remember it quite well. Uh, secondly, um, Southern Plantation is. Um, is basically a Chicago brand. That's where okay. it has had most of its um, in the past, but it's been uh, it's a lesser brand right now. Probably um, our most interesting brand is Dorsal. Okay. Uh, the Wilson Corn Products bought Dorsal Milling out of uh, close to Covington, Kentucky, uh, probably 25 years ago. And one of their products was Pinhead Oats. Hmm. That is a very, very strong brand sure in the yep. Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky market. Yep. And uh, and the cornmeal, the white cornmeal that's under that brand also is, uh, it has a tremendous following. As a matter of fact, we ship uh, dorsal pinhead oats all over the world to people who grew up eating getta 
which is a combination yep. of pinhead yep. oats and, and sausage that you yep. fry. Uh, we, we, we sell it all over the world, you know, to people who grew up in Cincinnati who long for that, for that product. Um, Gallo Dorado was a well-intended uh, effort. Uh, it's not actually up and coming. It is dormant at the moment. Um, that was uh, our attempt to get into the corn masa market yep. on a retail right. basis. Uh, we never did find the right avenue to do that. We did find a way to be truly competitively priced with the major Mexican companies. And we, so we have shelved that for the time being, but you know, at some point we'll roll that back out if conditions are such that uh, we see an opportunity to maybe make a dent. Well, and that's kind of one of the things, that's why I wanted to, to, to mention that. And it ties into the philosophy of, of Prairie Mills in general, you and John and your team, because, you guys are nimble enough to kind of turn on a dime. And if you get that, and, and I remember when you guys were kicking the tires with that and getting started, um, and if it doesn't work, it doesn't work, but it doesn't mean the end of the world. It means that you guys shelf it and you kind of keep doing some testing and keep plugging and, and keep prodding, and you can turn on a dime and turn it back on. And um, and who knows where that'll go. But, you know, I mean, that's that's one of the real advantages of working with a Prairie Mills. One of the strategic decisions that John made back in the beginning was as we changed our packaging from the old um, paper uh, SOS uh, glue top bags to the stand-up resealable pouch, is that we decided rather than to pre-print a lot of plastic, a lot of bags, we would invest in a high-quality labeling machine. Yep, yep. All of our retail product. Uh, is, is it carries a label, and we make sure the labels are, are very high quality, very well designed, very colorful and eye appealing. And as a result of that, we can react to opportunities very quickly within a matter of days. Whereas if you're going to a major company, it takes an act of Congress within those bureaucracies, correct, um, to, to to make a change. You know, and, and, and the and smart really thing able to do private label types of products for certain people, right? And the smart thing with that is, is first and foremost, like I mentioned before, the packaging that you're using. Yes, you've got the labeler, but the packaging you're using is keeping your product fresh. So the first thing you did back in the days, you guys said, "Hey, we're going to invest in a structure." that's got to protect this product and make sure that it's, it stays as fresh or fresher for longer. And, and, and you pay for it. And, it's, a, and it's, it's, not over, it's not a Cadillac. It's a very solid Chevy. And my point is, is that that's a philosophy that you guys had. You didn't go to the bargain basement and go for the cellophane that you know probably would save you a couple of points. But at the long run, you could end up with an inferior product or a customer that's upset or a product that doesn't you know, uh, hold up as well as you want. And, and and props to you guys because that's that's a philosophy and a lot of companies don't have that. Well, we wanted to make sure we would put the best packaging system out there we possibly could. We also wanted to get uh, understanding that in, in the American kitchen, the idea is to get things off the counter so you have good workspace. So we wanted to replace the canisters, you know, right. with with a, a bag that would fit in your cabinet. You know, in in your food pantry, uh, that that um, freed up your counter space. Sure. And sure. we wanted a packaging, a packaging system that that expanded the, the shelf life, 
that was uh, uh, repellent to insect infestation, sure. that was uh, less susceptible to uh, any kind of pest invasion, and, and this bag was the perfect solution. Now, I'm going to tell you, we lost some customers when we moved to the stand-up pouch, because whenever you make a change, especially for legacy customers, sure. they, are, they swear to change the product. Right. And there are some people that we lost because we don't do it in the in the paper bag anymore. Right. But we've right. also picked up customers who like the product, who saw the product maybe for the first time, even though it's been right before their eyes for years. And uh, uh, we're happy. We're happy with it. Of course, we'd Good. love to see more sales, but uh, we, we think the bank system has just been perfect for us. Fantastic. And hey, oh, buddy, this has been a blast. Competitors going to that. And they are. And we, they are. Hey, we kind of like to pride ourselves on being the first one who made that move. And you know what? And I think you were. And I and I think you should be proud because you guys stuck a, you know stuck your uh, stuck your foot out there and said we're going to make it happen. So, hey, buddy, it was fun. I hope you'll come back and share with us uh, and kind of fill us in on the the um, the new things and what's happening with Prairie Mills, folks. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. Our show airs Wednesdays at four p.m. Eastern, one p.m. Pacific. Until next time, remember, packaging is the voice of your brand. What's your packaging saying? Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to Ditch the Box. We're live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please join David Marinak for another great show next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.